Hi, this is Zoe Routh and welcome to the podcast. If this is your first time tuning in, you are so welcome. Thank you so much for showing up. And if you're a return listener, thank you. Thank you so much for tuning in once again so I can share the space between your ears for a little bit anyway. So today's guest, Corinne Armour, is a special woman. She is a fearless leadership specialist and she's had an enormous journey from the country in Australia out to the jungle. And in that experience, she learned a lot about herself, about leadership, and about people. So we share a little bit of that insight. And then she digs out the goods and gives us some critical insights on how to build accountability with the people around you and how to build psychological safety in teams with the people that you lead. Uh, She is the author of two books, including Leaders Who Ask and Developing Direct Reports. And she is remarkable. Let's get into it. Please welcome Corinne Armour. So excited to have Corinne Armour on the call today. I've known Corinne for a few years now, and she's always been a role model for me in all things leadership and living a high ethical life and a life of adventure. And so I'm really thrilled to share your story today. Welcome, Corinne. Thank you, Zoe. I'm excited to be here. A high ethical life. Wow. I'm When you say that, I'm thinking, oh, I feel like I I have to do a step up and live into that introduction. (laughs) Well, you've been called out now. Look out. Yeah. (laughs) Well, I think you have such an amazing life story, and I love the work that you do with leaders around fearless leadership. And you've described your life in three parts. You say that was before the jungle, in the jungle, and after the jungle. So what the heck happened in the jungle stuff? All right. So in the jungle, I was living, I lived for a couple of years in a refugee camp in the jungle on the edge of a war zone. So on the Thai Burmese border. So I was living with refugees from Burma, just inside Thailand. Why did you go there? First of all, like that's pretty out there. Like that's a pretty big decision. And you were only like 26 at the time, right? Yeah. uh, Yes. Yeah. So I... My sister had just finished university. She's five years younger than me. Um, and she was thinking about what next. And I I felt like my life was about a bit of a decision point. Like I grew up in the country. My parents had given up a lot to give me a private school education, which is not something that any of my family had done. And then I was the first in my family to go to university. Um, and my parents, again, sacrificed a lot so that I could do that. I got a fabulous job. You know, every year I had a fabulous promotion. I had a fabulous, you know, wardrobe and car. And, and I just felt like my whole life was directed around me and that I hadn't ever really chosen that. It was just like the next step followed the last step every time, but there wasn't ever any conscious choice. And so I decided to take a year off and the plan was my sister and I were going to spend six months in Southeast Asia and then five or six months in Africa. And that was 25 years or so ago. And I, I still haven't made it to Africa. I was going to say, oh, that Africa would have been fun. <laughs> no, I, I, I've seen the Lion King though. So I'm not, I'm not sure if that counts. <laughs> it does not count. <laughs> it doesn't count. Okay. <laughs> so I, I was trying to organize volunteer work along the way. Um, and I tried to organize that from Australia. So we're talking, actually, it's more than 25 years ago. And um, there was no such thing as the type of volunteer tourism that that exists now. And I kept ending up with the Overseas Service Bureau and they kept they said, well, we'll send your resume, we'll send you somewhere for two or three years. And I thought, I don't want to go anywhere for two or three years. I just want to do, you know, a couple of months, something useful along the way. And 
it wasn't possible to organize that. And then when I was in Bangkok, I heard that they were looking for teachers to teach English in the refugee camps along the border. And so I thought, well, I I can speak English, so I must be eminently qualified to teach it. So I didn't actually know where to go. And it was sort of like hearsay rather than, it wasn't like I saw an ad for something. And so I looked on the map and there was a town called Mesot, which was in the middle of the area where I thought the refugee camps were. So I thought, I'll just go there and see what happens. So oh my God. <laughs> I, I went on this little mini bus and we get to just about to Mesot and I was the only foreigner on the bus. And the, the bus driver says to me, oh, I take you my friend guest house. And I thought, oh, this could be, <laughs> this could be really bad, but I didn't have any plans. So I said, yes, please. And it turns out he took me to a guest house where foreign teachers who were working in the area went when they're in town. And even though it was midweek, there was a woman who'd had malaria. So she'd been sick and she'd come to town to get some decent food for a few days. And so she took me to a refugee camp where they didn't have a foreign teacher and they wanted one. And I stayed and I ended up resigning and staying for a couple of years. So that's how I got there. Where did, where, what happened to your sister along the way? She went home. It's, she didn't come with you to the refugee camp. No, well, she did. She visited twice, but it was visit. She actually met a boy about two weeks after we left Australia. And, um, you know, we ended up taking different pathways. CSS. <laughs> Ditching you. And I'm, glad she, I'm glad she did because maybe if she didn't, you know, I wouldn't have ended up where I ended up. So a couple of years in your refugee camp. I mean, that's that's a little bit more than just like have a bit of a break from from work and stuff. What kept you there? Um, I loved it. I loved the people. Up until then, I worked in marketing. So when I left Australia, I was working in marketing and marketing type roles. And so this is the first time in my life I actually felt like I was doing something useful. You know, every day I knew that I was making a positive difference to somebody's life. And in fact, to communities' lives, because I ended up doing more than teaching, although teaching was sort of the main thing that I was doing. And so there was a real sense of doing something valuable. Every day was different. You know, when you don't speak the language and you're the only foreigner, I I, I spoke the language by the time I left, but not terribly well. And I would wake up and I would know that something was happening like, I don't know, there was a sports event, for example. So I would have in my mind, like my first Christmas, they told me there was a sports day on Christmas Day. You know, that conjures up certain images. But anyway, it turned out to be tug of war and running around with baskets on your head trying to balance the basket and just just crazy things like I, I, nothing was ever what I expected. And so it was constant challenge, constant joy, constant learning. So life in the jungle. So there was life before the jungle where you're just doing marketing and then planning a trip with your sister. Then you arrive in this camp and you're there for a couple of years having this wild experience with every day is different and making a difference. What else happened? Uh, well, on the very first weekend I was there, it was Friday afternoon and I'd finished teaching. So I had a house next to the school. And we're talking refugee camp. So there's no running water, no power, you know, sometimes not, not food at all and all of the time not much food. So it wasn't, wasn't a particularly glamorous lifestyle. And I got to Friday and late afternoon and I thought, oh, I wonder what I do now because, you know, it's the weekend and there's no school on the weekend and I don't really speak the language and so I didn't really know what to do. Um, it turned out that was never a problem, but on my first Friday I thought maybe it would be. And then I heard this Australian voice and it was, hey, Aussie chick. And there was this two, an English guy and an Australian guy walked in 
carrying a sack on their bag with pumpkins and rice and because when you travel anywhere you take food with you and they'd come a couple of hours from a couple of hours south from another refugee camp because they'd heard that there was a new person in the area and they thought that I might like to learn a little bit about you know how to how to be there and so they took me on an illegal trip into Burma which and the the border in the place where we were the border was the Moy River so we would go across the river and um, and I met Min Thane, who um, was a guerrilla fighter, a revolutionary, and he'd been injured so he couldn't fight anymore. And so I met him. And so we became friends and we were friends for about a year or so. And then things got a little bit more complicated and our relationship shifted. And um, so that was an added complication. So what else did I do? I met the man who eventually became my husband. Um, I learnt the language and I I actually learnt a lot about teaching and I hadn't, oddly, I'd never really thought about it until this conversation now, but I think I think I draw on when I'm training leaders now, I think I draw on quite a lot of what I learned in the jungle because we didn't have like we didn't have facilities, we didn't have anything. If every kid had a piece of paper and some sort of pen or pencil to write with, it was an amazing day. So I learned to be really resourceful and I suspect that that probably underpins the, you know, the flexibility with which I train now because I had, I had to be that way in the jungle. Resourcefulness in a place like that is a survival tool for sure. And it's not something that leaders learn naturally if they have all the resources at their fingertips and get to do training programs and so on. They haven't learned how to think for themselves often uh, in those corporate environments. And so you met and fell in love with a guerrilla leader. And so many of these different experiences in the jungle would have transformed your perspective on life, people, and leadership. Resourcefulness is one of them from the leadership point of view. How did you see life and people differently after that? I think I'm a lot more compassionate. I think I've always been fairly compassionate, but I think this is that Minthane ended up, so Minthane was involved um, in 1988 in Burma, there was, so Minthane's my husband, the, the guerrilla fighter, there was a democratic uprising in Burma in 1988, which is similar to what happened in Tiananmen Square in China in 89, but there wasn't the foreign media in Burma, so we didn't really hear about it. And there was demonstrations led by the students. The military came in and killed thousands of students in the street. So the students fled to the border regions around Burma and then joined in an armed struggle for democracy. And it just really struck me as I met people like Minthane that that could have just as easily been me. Like he didn't grow up destined to be a guerrilla fighter. Like he didn't grow up with political ideals. He didn't, he didn't grow up you know, wanting to challenge the system. It just happened that way because of where and when he was born. And it really struck me that I've had such a lucky life, which I already knew, but that it's really such an accident that I had that life and not some other life. So I think for me that underpins compassion, you know, that you have what you have, certainly because, you know, you work hard and you've, you know, you've developed yourself and, you know, lots of things we do to build our life, but it's based on a certain amount of luck to start with and then luck along the way. I think that's something I learned a concept I'm playing with at the moment, I don't think I consciously learnt it then, but I've been thinking a lot recently about psychological safety and particularly psychological safety in leadership teams because that's where my, that's the after the jungle or the current version of after the jungle. Um, 
And, and so I've been thinking a lot about psychological safety. And when Min Thane was a guerrilla fighter, so he led a, a small group of, of men. They were all men in his case. And if they made poor decisions, people didn't live until the end of the day. And guerrilla fighting is, is small groups of people fighting against a much larger, more organised, well-resourced army. So they have to be flexible. They have to be adaptable. They have to be constantly thinking about where am I, where are they, what's happening next. So I've been playing with this idea of psychological safety. How do you create that even when you've got physical danger? So Mintane and his people were constantly in danger and yet through him forming strong bonds with the people he led and really understanding them, they could create a sense of psychological safety even within a really demanding um, environment of physical lack of safety. So that's that's actually, while it's something I learnt then, I, I hadn't really, you know, packaged that learning in a way that's useful until really just the last couple of months I've been thinking about that. So his ability to connect with others, how did he do that, do you think? You've been thinking about it and teasing apart his methodology, I guess, or style. What did you? What have you discovered? I think he's really interested in people and he got to know each of his people individually and what was important for them and what they needed from him as a leader. I think he also, and, and you hear leaders say this quite a bit, you know, I would never ask somebody to do something that I wouldn't do myself which I think is important as a conceptual idea, but not terribly useful if you're the CEO and you're running around doing things that everyone else in the organisation should be doing and you're doing it just to demonstrate that you can and you would. So I'm not, I'm not sure that that idea is fully, you know, fully able to extrapolate it. I think there's definitely something in the back, a willingness to do what others are doing and to empathise and to understand that things are scary. Like, Things are just scary. I asked Minthane one day, what was it like the first time you were on the front line? Mm. And I thought he would just, you know, give me some throwaway line about, you know, you just do what you have to do. But actually he just looked at me and he's really quiet for a while and he said, it's so scary. You know, you forget your purpose, you forget your reason for being there and you just want to run away. Wow. And, you know, in the context of that, it's so important that if people feel connected to you, then that will help them stay and face the, the times when they just want to run away, whether that's physically or metaphorically. I think that's a wonderful humanizing comment uh, to make, you know, that just because you're the leader and you've got this grand cause doesn't mean you sit there without the normal uh, survival fears triggering that, yeah. that flight. So he overrode that clearly to, to stay there. I wonder how he managed to do that. I don't know. I haven't actually asked him that. I think one of the most important things for Minthane was actually to come back to purpose. Like, what are we here for? And in Minthane's case, it was a belief in democracy and a, and a belief that there is a better way of running a country. Mm. you know, a better way of creating community than a military dictatorship, which is what, you know, he had experienced. And for all of the people that Minthane was with, they all had a similar purpose. And the, the rationale was a bit different for some of them. Like some of them had seen um, their families killed or their villages torched or they'd been um, in the demonstrations in 88 and they'd seen, you know, people gunned down. 
and some of them were, were more about the political ideals. So the sort of the, the driver for that overarching purpose might have been a little different for each person, but the purpose was clear and everyone believed in it and for that they were willing to put their life on the line every day. Literally. I know. And it's it's hard to imagine living in, in the comfortable life that we do in Australia. What would call us to make those kinds of decisions? What would we be willing to put our lives on the line for? And we don't necessarily know until, as you say, you end up in these circumstances. And he never chose yeah. that. It's not like he woke up and was born at two years old saying, I'm going to be a guerrilla fighter. <laughs> Stuff happened it. and it pushed him into a place yeah. where he made that call. Um, so I'm curious, like as people who have lived in different countries and experienced some pretty difficult circumstances looking around the world now I was just reading some news about Hong Kong and the the militant protests that are happening there Mm. what's your perspective on that kind of uprising given where you've been I think that's a really tricky question because I think every context is so different I'm not comfortable to pass a a general judgment I think when you've got people who are willing, whether it's in Hong Kong or whether it's just in Victoria or on, you know, in Australia or on other issues, when you've got people who are willing to go that far to make a point, then you have to question, you know, what's the system around that that's creating that and how can we do it better? I love that. I feel like that we're, we're in an environment that's quite polarising I agree. Yeah. And that's not helpful. When we can see what's common between us, you know, it activates different parts of the brain. So our, our, our sort of neurology changes when we are looking for what's the same about people than when we're looking for what's different about people. And I feel like we're in, an, we're in, a, we're in a time right now which feels quite polarising. How do you mean like the neurology changes when we find commonalities? Well, there's parts of our brain light up. It's referred to as the like me, not like me circuitry. So different parts of our brain will fire up when I'm with someone who I think is like me. And I'm talking before about helping people feel safe. If I feel safe with you and I trust you, then different neurochemicals are released and they will allow me to hear and respond to messages in more difficult messages in more productive ways whereas if I'm hearing the same news from a leader I don't trust then my behavior might be much less resourceful because there's different you know I'm swimming in a different neurochemical soup mm. yeah that's great and and I that, you know that's all part of the the psychological safety conversation and helping people feel safe and able to share and communicate and to receive difficult feedback. I mean, that's that's sort of your jam. That's what you've been doing for a number of years yeah. as a leadership expert. And you've written two books with those principles in mind. And your latest one is Leaders Who Ask, which I thought was a beautiful book in terms of uh, just practical suggestions on how leaders might approach different difficult conversations in a way that encourages growth in, instead of getting people to shut down. So what was the impetus behind Leaders Who Ask? Seeing how many leaders would say to me, I'm frustrated because my people won't, my people won't take initiative. Or I'm frustrated because I have an all-staff meeting, you know, and I, I brief everybody and then I ask for responses and nobody says anything. People just not understanding that 
it's actually their style that's shutting down people. And when I hear somebody say, you know, oh, I've got, I've got Zoe on my team and Zoe never takes initiative and Zoe won't make her decisions on her own and, you know, Zoe won't this and Zoe won't that. And I say to them, do you reckon Zoe might be doing any of these things in her own life? You know, maybe she's got kids and she's the president of the Parents and Friends Association or maybe she's interested in bonsai and, you know, she's the treasurer of the bonsai club. Or, you know, there's So not bonsai club president. <laughs> no, no bonsai club. You know, perhaps she's got an ageing mother and she's making some really complex decisions about care treatment plans for the next two years. Like, I very much doubt that Zoe takes no initiative. I think what happens is Zoe takes no initiative in the environment you have created in your current team. Wow. So that's sort of smack between the eyes. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes I, I, I work people towards that message a little slower than I just did now. <laughs> it's your fault. They suck because you suck. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, well, that I think mostly that's the, the bottom line. I mean, we do have some people who are so seriously damaged that, you know, there's not much we can do with them or, you know, that are clinically challenged, but there's not many of them in the workplace. Yeah. I find that with my work too. So I did a, a survey for my uh, for the book that I'm currently writing on people stuff and ask what frustrates the most about people. And they had a long litany, which included, you know, people won't speak up in meetings and, and people don't take initiative. That was a big common one. But none of them said outright, I'm not sure what I'm doing or is it me? I think through, at, towards the end of the survey. <laughs> Did you give them an option? Uh, I, I asked them, you know, what skill do you want to get better at? And so that was like the first opening into like, perhaps I'm contributing here, but there was definitely, and I, I hear it a lot in the initial conversations with leaders anyway, is that the, the problems are always in the people as opposed to the problem is yeah, in the leader. Always. Um, yeah. So what do you, what other big people stuff problems do you see coming up with leaders? Uh, so my work is really in two spaces predominantly. One is leaders who ask. So that's about helping leaders to, build accountability, build engagement, deepen their connections and get the right work done. And whilst it's there's more complexity to it than this, but if leaders stop telling people what to do and start asking questions instead, real questions, not what I call questions in sheep's clothing. But You mean answers in sheep's clothing? Is that what you meant? Questions in sheep's clothing. What, what does that mean, <laughs> questions in sheep's clothing? Like a, a question that's grammatically a question because it has a question mark in it, but really it's an embedded command. Like, <laughs> okay. you know, Zoe, have you thought about sitting down with the CEO and having this conversation with her? Like that's grammatically that's a question. Yeah. But actually what I'm really saying is, look, Zoe, this is what you should do. Why haven't you thought of that yet? Right. A bit more sort of poke in the eyeball approach. Yeah. So, so that's my mission to have leaders tell less and ask more. So to your question of, so the other work that I do is I work with executive teams to build fearless leadership. So this is about executive teams being able to leverage the thinking diversity that's in the room. So to link back to your question of what are some of the challenges, I'm smart. I've thought things through. I have a view um, and I have a, an approach of doing things. Your approach is different to mine. I don't believe that I'm wrong, therefore you must be wrong. And in the absence of trust, difference becomes right and wrong. Whereas if you're in a leadership team where there's high levels of trust, 
then we can get past the difference and we can see that as diversity rather than difference. And then the next step again is, well, how do we include that? How do we get everybody working together and really leveraging the different points of view? So I think there's a real challenge around being able to understand, recognise and work with people who are different, have different styles to us. Another challenge I see a lot in the executive teams is just that a lack of cabinet solidarity. So we come together to make decisions. We make them fairly superficially. Like we have a conversation, we get to a fairly superficial decision and we walk out. And then either we all do what we were going to do anyway, or the decision is implemented, but it's really implemented with they decided, you know, the executive team decided and I got rolled. So that lack of ability to have really good, tough conversations that enable everybody to be heard and possibly for the people who need some time to think about it, that we go away and we finish the conversation again later, that we don't come to an immediate decision and that we really get good quality decisions because they include everybody and then that they're fully endorsed afterwards. So I think I think that's another challenge. I think we we're so concerned about the lack of connection and the dynamics within that our attention and our energy stays within the organization and we're not looking outwards to be able to be scanning the horizon and to be thinking strategically and to be looking at you know what are our competitors doing what are the risks what are the opportunities if you're so focused inside defending yourself and your patch then there's not the time and the energy and the headspace to be looking outside oh, you're so right so if everybody's squabbling internally then they're not going to be paying attention to what's moving around them. I have a question around building accountability, and you mentioned it in relation to asking questions. How do you actually do that? So if you want to you know, encourage people to have accountability for their actions, what kinds of questions do you use to do that? Um, it would depend on the context. But just as a step back before the questions, if I tell you what to do, then you might listen. And you might even engage and you might remember it and you might do it, but not much of your brain is involved in that. Whereas if I, instead of telling you the answer, if I ask you a question that leads you to solve that challenge yourself with insight, you know, that flash of, oh, I get it. You know, I put these different ideas together and I've worked it out. Then that triggers the brain's reward response. So dopamine's released. So I feel good because I've come up with this idea myself. The hippocampus is involved, which is the part of the brain responsible for long-term memory. So I'm more likely to be able to remember something than I've come up with myself. Because I've drawn from different pre-existing knowledge to come up with this new idea, then I'm more able to generalize my, my idea to situations in the future. So when I come up with something that's a bit similar, I can say, okay, well, that's what I did yesterday. That'll probably work here as well. So when we tell people what to do, we might get compliance, but that's it. Whereas if when we ask a question that engages people, then they feel good about it. Their, their reward system's been triggered. They're more likely to remember it and they're more likely to own it and to be able to generalize it to other things in future. So the type of questions need to be open questions, but it can be as simple as when people rush up to you during the day and say, oh, Zoe, you know, I'm, I'm having trouble with the Smith account. What should I do? So many of us just go into, ah, you should, blah, 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 because we've been there before. But, you know, the person might already have been working on that. They might already have tried that. So just a really good question is, what have you already tried? Then that gives you a bit more context. 
And then what do you think I'm going to suggest? (laughs) Oh, well, I think you'd probably suggest that I should blah, blah, blah. Okay, then do that. (laughs) So it can just be as simple as that. You know, if it's a more complex situation, then you really then you might need to guide them to be understanding more about what's going on in in the situation. You know, what what really is happening there, and then what some of the drivers behind that, and then get them to work with them to develop some different options. So, what could we do instead, and then to that diagnose that pathway forward. So, what is it that you will do? So that's a sort of a more broader a coaching conversation rather than just a a short response in the moment. But what we're really wanting people to do is build their awareness and develop their own solutions. uh, Quite often people say, yeah, 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 but, you know, anything that they come up with, it won't be as good as the idea I've got. (laughs) Who cares? Unless the idea they come up is, is dangerous, you know, for themselves or someone else or for the brand, then if they're committed to that and they do it well, much better they do that than they do your solution that might be slightly better or, or might not even be slightly better, but they, and they're not committed to it. I love those examples. Those are really great. There's just those little in-your-pocket questions you can have where somebody says, what, what should I do about this? And you just breathe, pause, and, say, and just serve it back so they can work with it. When I worked at Outward Bound, we were taught the Socratic questioning method. I'm not sure if, if this is what you're talking about or something different. And so the way that I understood Socratic questioning and used it in teaching people how to read maps, say, for example, was instead of saying, well, this is how you do it. It's like I'd already given a briefing. So they just needed reminders on how to problem solve their map. You'd be like, OK, so where's the top of the map? So you teach them how to orient the map and then just ask specific questions, which teaches them the thinking process. That's slightly more prescriptive than I think what you're suggesting, or is it the same? I think that's a bit different because that sounds to me like there is a level of technical skill and you're just guiding them with questions to reconnect with their technical skill. And that can definitely work in the workplace, or it might be something that's less of a technical solution than that and requires a bit more open thought, like, you know, challenges between two people Mm. or a direct report who comes to you and says that they're struggling to get their team together around something. So there might be less of a technical skill, but more of a, I I think about as my coaching model is discover, decode, and then develop. So discover what's going on and the impact of that, and then decode what's really driving that, what's behind that. So, for example, if we, we might look at Fred who's, who's overloaded and doesn't seem, to be, doesn't seem to have anybody in his team who's stepping up to help him, and then when we look into it, what we discover is that Fred's not delegating anything. So the technical fix for that would be, well, let's send Fred off to the Australian Institute of Management to do a one-day you know, delegation skills course. But he probably already knows how to delegate. It's just something's behind that that's stopping him. So that's the decode, you know, what's behind that's stopping him delegating. And then when you understand that, that might actually give you a different way forward. So the, the develop is let's develop the pathway forward. What are we actually going to do with that? And how's Fred going to take responsibility for that himself? And you as the leader might have a role in supporting that. It's what Fred wants and needs, not necessarily what you think Fred wants and needs. Mm. So you've been, you've been deeply immersed in people stuff for, well, it sounds like your entire adult life. <laughs> What's the most surprising thing you've learned about people? Wow. What's the most surprising thing? 
uh, maybe this is a this is a get out of jail free response, but I feel like that people are surprising. (laughs) (laughs) Like you don't know what people's stories are. Often that's not clear from their behavior. So if I, if I give you an example from me last week, I did a, a fairly intensive training program. So it was residential Monday morning through to Friday afternoon And we had to work in pairs and on the Thursday we had to take a half an hour session of the workshop. With my pair and I, we were talking about identity and loss and what you lose when you make change and adaptive change, what you lose. And so we decided to start out with, I told a story about when Minthane and I travelled from the Thai-Burmese border to Bangkok. Minthane was on a forged passport. There was a lot of fear on the bus and the identity shifts that were required from him to go from being a revolutionary to being a refugee with poor English who's hard to listen to you know, when he arrived in Australia. So we just told that story in two or three minutes to frame our session. And afterwards, one of the guys came up to me and said, so I'd known this guy only for four days, but you know, relatively intensely as you do on this type of program. And he said to me, wow, all my preconceptions about you just blown away completely wrong. (laughs) And I think people have the ability to surprise us all the time. It's just that we're not often, we're not willing to, to look for that or be open to it. And we're afraid of what we might find. Are we afraid or just ignorant, do you think? I think it's a little bit of everything. And sometimes we're just too busy. I'm sure there's stacks I don't know about you, Zoe, that... And, and some of that would make me think, oh, wow, I never know that about Zoe. <laughs> and we'd, there's an element of timing in all of this too. Timing and attention, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we're all the center of our own universes. And sometimes we forget that there's other, other people in their own universes bumping up against ours who've got equally rich life experiences. And I love that. I love that observation that people, that the most surprising thing about people is that people are surprising. Yeah, they are so beautiful to discover and to to see what's created someone. And whenever I do storytelling or story sharing in leadership programs, I'm constantly amazed by what people have lived through and what they carry with them yes. all the time. Yeah, yeah. All right, what do you love most about people? What I love most about people? Oh, just people's capacity for connection. Oh, Nice. Yeah. I mean, you've connected with people in the most extraordinary circumstances and that has carried over into the work that you do. Um, Mm. Tell me a little bit more about that. People's capacity for connection. When, when have you really experienced connection as a capacity and depth and something that was profound? Well, and I could go as, as far away as when I was tiny little child or even just yesterday. So yesterday I was working with a one-on-one with a coaching client. I don't do very much coaching these days because most of my work is with leadership teams. So I do, I do do a little bit of coaching. So I was working with an executive yesterday and this person has a huge amount going on in her life. And she started to tell me some of the things that were going on, both personally and professionally, that I really... You know, one or two of these things would be a massive challenge, but she seems to have this confluence of just a stack of very challenging things. And I looked at her 
And I've got all these fancy coaching questions going through my mind, you know, what I could ask, because I'm such a skilled coach now, I could ask her this or this or this or this. And I looked at her and, and she said to me, I don't know what I need. And I said, I've got an idea. She said, I said, I think you need a hug. And she said, yes. And so I just gave her a hug. Now, it didn't solve any of the problems, but it didn't hurt either. Oh, it probably so did help, though. We, <laughs> and what, what she needed in that moment was she just needed that human connection. And, and I'm not particularly touchy-feely with my clients. Like it would be, it's fairly unusual that I would hug my clients in a coaching session, but that was what was needed yesterday. Oh, that's beautiful. Really, I, w- I would, would have picked you as a hugger. You're not a hugger. Not, not overly, no. <laughs> maybe it's your, maybe it's your connection ability that just gives the impression that you, you hug people energetically at least. I think I do that. I'm very comfortable with that. Yeah. <laughs> I think another connection that was massive for me, Zoe, was the first night I was in the refugee camp. And so I'd, I'd arrived and, and I was wondering on so many levels, what am I doing here? And I just kept going through my head. I'm just a country girl. You know, I grew up, I grew up in Gippsland. I grew up on a farm. I don't know the language. I don't know anything about warfare. Like what stupidity led me to be in this place? And so that was a little bit of a backdrop for my thinking. And as I said, my house was next to the school. And so it's quieter at night because the school was on the top of a hill. And I'd been given dinner which wasn't terribly substantial, as you can imagine. And so I was sitting cross-legged on the floor with my little table and I'd eaten dinner and I just went into a completely paralysed, frozen state. And I, I don't know how long. Like it could have been 20 seconds. It could have been 20 minutes or more. Just this fear that just completely overcame me. And I just, I just sat there paralysed. And then I I heard a noise and I looked up and this little girl came in and she didn't speak English. And at that stage I was, I was with ethnic Karen people, so I didn't speak any Karen. And so she, she walked in and she smiled and she, she held out her hand and she held my hand and she took me to a house nearby where people were singing and laughing and, that human connection that that little girl made with me was just one of the greatest acts of leadership in my life of someone showing leadership to me. And I was never afraid. Again, there was a few times when I was physically afraid, but I was never afraid in that sort of, and I call it afraid, afraid of spirit. I don't really know how else to explain it. I was never afraid again like that. And it was that connection that that little girl made that allowed me to get through that. And I I think of her as a leader who taught me a lot. What a beautiful story. Oh, my God. That's like I'm tearing up. It just makes me want to be a better person thinking about that, you know, how just the gesture of of an innocent child can reassure someone. And what if we did that more in our world so where we just reach out to someone who's alone, who looks alone, and just connect with them? That's extraordinary. (laughs) I try not to weep all over the microphone. Okay. Um, (laughs) One last question. I'll be a bit more pragmatic. What's your current most favorite leadership book? My current most favorite leadership book. Oh, what I'm reading 
right now is Turn the Ship Around by, um, oh. I know that book. We'll put a link to it in the show notes for you. Yeah, we'll put a, put a link to it. So he was the commander of a US submarine, highly bureaucratic layers of leadership. The only person on the ship who made the decision was the captain, David McKay. It's by David McKay. And um, he took on the, the worst performing ship in the naval fleet and realised that what they'd been doing up until now wasn't working. And so he started to implement what he calls leader leader. So he said the leader follower idea doesn't work. The leader follower means you end up with one person on the ship who thinks, whereas he needed, I think it was 136 or 136 sailors to be thinking. So he embraced what he called leader leader. But I think of it as just the leader who asks, like stop telling people what to do and start asking questions that get people engaged, that get people thinking, that get people really living up to their potential. It's a really good book from the level, the lessons of leadership, but it's also very, it's an interesting story as well. Mm. So that's what I'm in the middle of right now. Oh, very nice. Very nice. All right. And where can people find you? What's the best place if people want to reach out and connect with you? People can connect with me on LinkedIn or on my website, corinnearmour.com. And it's double R, double N, E. Double R and double N, yes. <laughs> I think I'm the only person in the world spelt like that. Apparently the story goes, my grandfather was so excited by my birth that um, when he, my mum sent him off to register my birth and he couldn't remember what my mum said by the time he arrived at, I don't know, the post office or wherever it was in those days you registered births. And um, so it was misspelt. So it's been a challenge forever. <laughs> That's hysterical. My nervous father or grandfather, did you say? Grandfather. 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 That's so funny. Yeah. Uh, Corinne, it's been absolutely fantastic having you on the podcast. Thank you so much. I've loved your stories and your insight. You're a wise soul and a compassionate, wonderful woman. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Zoe. It's been great to talk with you. Well, there was so much to take away from that episode. It's amazing. I guess for me, a couple key ones is... With the coaching approach, her model of discover, decode, and develop is a lovely, simple methodology to remember and how you can interact with people to help them find out what's going on, to dig below the surface of what's happening. So instead of telling people what to do, you simply ask them. I think probably the other big key takeaway for me was just the power of connection and how the simple acts of humanity of that simple connecting human to human can make an enormous difference in someone's immediate experience as well as their long-term leadership journey as it did with Corinne. Hope you enjoyed it. See you next time.